story started in kind of the most unusual places in my, uh, you know, my teen or late teen, early 20 years. I was in the business world, part of a couple of dot-com startups that brought me out by large white church, Willow Creek Community Church mm-hmm. in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. And so I ended up working on staff there for most of my 20s. And uh, I was officiating a wedding early in my career there, cross-cultural wedding. And uh, the the bride-to-be was white and the groom was of Indian descent and he promised that I would get a deep dive uh, into Indian culture at the uh, rehearsal dinner the night before, <laughs> which it was. It was really uh, quite an experience being part of his family and some of his roots and um, I made what I just felt was an innocent comment at the time when it ended. I was just so taken up by it. I pulled him over and I said, man, I am so jealous of you that you have a culture. Like obviously mm-hmm. as a white person, I don't have a culture, but you have an amazing culture and I wish I had something like that to draw from. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he was not usually a very serious guy, but on this night, the night before his wedding, he got very serious. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. Mm. You should really learn about your culture. And though there were multiple points along the development of my life where I could have and should have been wrestling with this stuff, for whatever reason, it was that particular conversation sure. where he kind of opened a door and just kind of left me standing there. And just the unsettledness, one that I even was part of a culture, I just never thought like that. I was so steeped into white culture, I just thought of it as kind of the normal baseline. But this kind of power idea that white culture kind of swallowed up other cultures or won when it came in contact, it just set me on a really intense journey of yeah. learning new things. This is the voice of Daniel Hill, a pastor and writer in Chicago. Daniel is the pastor at River City Community Church, and as he puts it, he writes a lot about resisting and confronting white supremacy from a faith lens. That focus has been embodied in the publishing of two books, White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White, which came out in 2017, and White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us, which came out in September of 2020. This conversation with Daniel took place in the fall of 2018 and is now finally seeing the light of day. Just like my interview with Jamar Tisby, I'm sure you can already tell that even though this occurred two years ago, it is perhaps even more relevant and urgent today. My name is Chuck Armstrong, and I am a pastor and writer based in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, and this is my podcast, Hope in Hell's Kitchen. As this podcast evolves, I hope to dive into the values that have shaped our church in Hell's Kitchen and the values that have shaped my life. And one of those values is anti-racism, and Daniel and his work continue to be a guiding voice for me in my life and in my journey. This episode of Hope in Hell's Kitchen is the first part of my interview with Daniel Hill. The, the term white privilege can be a very loaded term. Sure. Um, my friend Julian DeSage, just DeShazier, who's a black pastor on the South Side, he defines privilege simply as the ability to walk away, which I think is a really helpful bottom line because the system of race is deadly. Um, it has deadly consequences, but one of the privileges is those who are least affected by it, which I would say white people in this system are least affected by it, at least in a negative kind of way. We're definitely affected by it, but not in the oppressive right. kind of a way. Right. Um, we just don't have to think about it. Um, um, our livelihood's not dependent on thinking about it. And so th- that's what I started coming. What started as just a very peripheral um, curiosity, even a defensiveness, if I'm honest, sure. started taking me to this notion that race is a human-created construct that's been developed to acquire and accrue power and to put one group on top, one on the bottom. I mean, everything about it was just so hard for me, you know? And so, um, yeah, so when it gets to kind of the personal side of it, yeah, that that's yeah. where... Um, yeah, start becoming personal very quickly. You said defensive, and I've certainly had conversations with 
people when you know talking about the history of racism or slavery things like that it's yeah. very easy for uh, people to you know clutch their pearls and say well, I didn't own slaves so why right. should I have to apologize for the sins of past generations uh, as you went through this process and as you took sort of an honest look at this this idea of of the dominant culture uh, did you encounter that kind of thinking how did you absolutely how yeah. did you sort of respond to that well so you can decide which direction so i think there's a huge theological problem in this and i yeah. think there's a huge historical problem mm-hmm. so the historical one i think is one i'd come to come to first i think um mark charles is a friend and uh, i don't know if you guys have had him on this yet but he's a navajo practitioner and theologian mm-hmm. in dc and he uses the term it's actually controversial but i think it gets some he uses the term white trauma and so what he means by that is because the history books have so I was going to say misrepresented at least. I mean, I I think there's an overt campaign to really tell the story differently than what happened. We don't tell the truth about how colonization happened and how we took over this country. We don't tell the truth about how serious slavery was and Jim Crow and some of the things in there. And so um, you can't grow up in this education system without kind of being insulated from the truth. And so when you start to find the truth, that's where Mark gets to the fact it's traumatizing to mm. see how deep and how violent and how vile so much of our history is. And it just goes completely against kind of the narratives we've created about how magical kind of the development of this country is. And so that's one piece of it that I could talk more about, but I think that's one of it is just, um, in fact, as you know, in the book, Wide Awake, that's the first stage I talk about is right. like the trauma that happens when you go into the, like when denial gets kind of revealed. And I don't think it's always active denial, but once we start to learn the truth, I actually literally think there was kind of an emotional feeling that happens. Like, no, 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 this can't be true. This can't be true. It can't be that bad. It can't be that far reaching. And um, there become key points along the way, which is like simply just have to stay in the conversation. But it's always tempting to kind of opt back out and go to life as normal. Sure. Yeah. How has that influenced you as a pastor? Well, um, I think it's really helpful that despite the sophisticated ways Jesus talks about himself and the sophisticated ways Jesus talks about the devil, at the end of the day, there's some simple words put on both, right? Um, the devil is called a liar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, John eight forty four, Jesus says the devil is a liar. The devil's native tongue is that of lies, and he's the father of lies, which is an aside. It's pretty scary that he tells the Pharisees they live under the father of lies, mm-hmm. so you can actually know the Bible really well and still live under lies. Right. So I think the fact that the devil's associated with lies, that Jesus is associated with truth, that will know the truth and the truth shall set us free. I actually don't think there's anything more fundamental about Christianity than exposing lies and walking into the truth. So I think anytime we have individually or especially collectively been complicit with a set of lies in any kind of way, that's very serious business. It's not, and it's no longer social or political or whatever other term you put on it to marginalize it. It becomes kind of a fight for truth. And um, I think the stuff around race has got, it's got a lot of lies wrapped up in it on many fronts. And so as a pastor, I want people to know the truth that's in Jesus Christ. And yeah. um, I don't think we can know that truth without understanding kind of how we got to where we got to. Is this something that you are talking about every Sunday? Like, how, how does a your sort of your church sort of approach this is this something that's just part of the culture is it you know you come to it when you come to it in scripture or what, what has it kind of manifested so i think there's been an evolution for me i think the kind of you know i grew up i'm a product i'm a pastor's kid i've grown up in evangelical settings all my life and yeah. so i couldn't figure out how race figured into the gospel when i started on this so what i almost had to do is take the bible teachings that i'd grown up with in evangelical <laughs> circles and then i had to go into liberal or academic spaces and learn about race then to come back in again and figure out how the bible was always talking about it but wasn't talking about it in my circles sure. so it would have initially been like there's kind of gospel kinds of things and from time to time we're talking about the importance of race i hope we become more sophisticated in and what I hope all of us will do is I just think there's certain theological frameworks that are about just following Jesus and 
period now. And almost within every one of those theological frameworks, whether it would be seeking first the kingdom or following Jesus or the renewing of your mind or good versus evil in the world and how we participate in that. There's all these different kind of theological frames for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And within each one of them, I think it calls on us to combat race in a different kind of way within that theological frame. Mm. And so so we've moved away from there's the gospel and then one of the implications is we should talk about to whichever part of the gospel we're talking about whether it's who we are in Christ and how race shapes who we are in Christ or mm-hmm. how we join in mission bearing witness and the way race has compromised the witness of the gospel or whatever the aspect of discipleship is. Oftentimes there's applications for the system of race. And so at that level, it does come up a lot, um, but not always even an overt conversation around race. Just It's just overtly about following Jesus in the ways that there's a spiritual stronghold around race in this day and age. What's this conversation like in Chicago? I mean, it, you know, when we hear... Uh, national leaders talk about the crime in Chicago, and and we it, it makes headlines across the country, whether you live in Chicago or not. And so often that's tied to race. Yeah. Uh, and so, d- how do you, does that sort of affect the conversation as a church in I Chicago? So I would suspect. I don't know this because I'm not outside of Chicago. I would suspect there's an illusion that because those who are privileged are in the city of Chicago, they're therefore up closer to the conversation. Mm. But I actually, my experience, which is as privilege is privilege, no matter where you're at, you can yeah. actually even live in the city where violence is hardcore and affecting people on the margins, and you can live in a different world than them and choose not to ever engage with it. So I'm not sure in yeah. the dominant culture church that the conversation is much different in Chicago than it is everywhere else in the country. Yeah. Yeah, well, and as you talk about sort of the dominant culture and the margins, you know, I've heard you talk about uh, sort of how there can be one thing, race, and how the dominant culture can look at it and see one thing. Mm-hmm. And then those who are shaped by the margins yeah. can look at it and see something completely yeah. completely different. Yeah. How do you, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, if we had 24 hours, you could unpack this probably. Uh, but how do you sort of see race being that being that thing that... A dominant culture, the dominant white culture looks at and sees one thing, but then those shaped by the margin, they look at race and they see something completely different. So risk of oversimplification is it's always going to be in a short conversation like this. I, I really believe that some of what's most evil about race is that it's created a human hierarchy of mm. value. And it's created this thing called whiteness is at the top, which, of course, that didn't exist when we first started when right. as a country. When Europeans came, they were called Polish or Irish or Italian or you know wherever they were coming from. But the social category of whiteness was created. And with it was given power and meaning and value. And from that point on, proximity to the power of whiteness has been what defines value and so then it kind of moves its way down the hierarchy there's asian and latino and then black which is you know the campaign is always most vicious against blackness which it tries to say black is less than human and that's always been necessary to maintain slavery or jim crow or lynching or whatever else has happened and so it's an ideology first which is really what the term white white supremacy can be a very charged term but that's really what it's getting at right it's an ideology of supremeness yeah that there's a supremeness attached to whiteness and an inferiority attached to blackness and then this scale that's in between them and so it's bad enough that there's an ideology. That would be problematic as well. But when you can create systems around that, right? Like if you actually have a higher chance of being incarcerated or injured or ex- not given a job or you can't live where you want to live, which is how, like, for instance, the city of Chicago is completely created around this narrative of racial difference that white people are allowed to live in one place right. and black people aren't allowed. So it's it's not just an ideology. It, it plays out in very severe ways in day-to-day life. And so the closer you are to white, the less likely you are to experience the oppressive realities mm-hmm. of that and the, the closer you are to black the more likely it is that you constantly experience that and so so 
those of us in the dominant culture don't tend to see the viciousness of race and how much it puts your psychology, at, your psychological well-being at risk, your spiritual well-being at risk, your actual physical body at risk. Sure. Um, it organizes society around putting it at risk. And so that's some of the depth, I think. It can turn into this like casual barroom conversation for those who are in dominant culture, and it actually has ext- extreme life and death kind of consequences for others. And um, when you've not lived actually in the skin of that, it's, it's very difficult to, I think, grasp how far-reaching it actually is. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, too. I've, I've definitely had conversations where I think, those in the dominant culture, white men in leadership or women in leadership will feel like, well, I, I shouldn't be the one talking about this because, you know, I, I'm white, so what, what can I add to this conversation? But it seems like the opportunity for the dominant culture is to admit and repent of the control that that culture has. Yeah, so I, mean, I think we could look at even by sector. So we're we're talking in a church podcast right yeah, now. A lot of yeah. people are in church working hard. Let's not everybody listen. This is going to be a pastor, but right. um, in churches, if we have frameworks of understanding the gospel that don't understand how to rebuke the human hierarchy of racism, which I would say in most white spaces we don't. We don't right. actually. Now we'll say from a pulpit, racism is bad. Anybody who commits a racist act, that's bad. That's sinful, right? But that's such a narrow, superficial way of viewing it. What we really have to get to is this ideology that's demonic, really, that challenges God's very self, right? God is the one who gives human dignity and value, right? But race really does try to play God. It tries to say that human beings are valuable based on where they fall in this racial hierarchy. So, for instance, to be white... Um, I don't think it's just a comfort to people of color who are threatened by this ideology. It's to actually locate themselves in a tradition that has not historically been on the right side of talking about theology in a way that gets the fullness of it. Even in modern day, when racist acts happen, for instance, when Charlottesville happens, still most people, most white Christians speak to the most superficial part of it, which is, Bad white people did bad white things. Bad white supremacist people gathered up, and we condemn any white supremacist kind of gatherings yeah. that happen, right? Like, that's every church I know of. That's for the most part. Now, is that true? Of course it's true. I'm not saying that's it. But right. it's, it doesn't get to even close to the substance of what's actually wrong, of the ideology that exists for that in the first place, and the way that poisons all of us, right? So I think that's what I think of. I think for white folks, especially to help white folks see the gospel in a, in a wholer, more holistic kind of a way, mm-hmm. a fuller kind of a way, to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what the kingdom is, what repentance is, what it means to see the work of the evil one, what's strong strongholds are and how Jesus is combating those, I, I think there's important work that has to be done to kind of challenge the superficial ways that we've theologically talked about some of this stuff. Yeah, and you know, we, you're talking as a, as, a, as a church planner, as a pastor in Chicago, a lot of people listening uh, are professionals in their own right, right in their own vocations, right. uh, but yeah, we so, might call themselves Christians, and so how totally. do they sort of approach this? So for instance, me and my team just did, um, uh, we were pleasantly surprised, the Federal Reserve asked us to do an event around the system of race for 20 banks in Chicago. Oh, and wow. so, um, so what we did when we were at this is we talked about two different fields that in the workplace should be addressed. You know, it's in most professional settings now, you've got a DNI thing, a diversity and inclusion kind of a thing, right, with all these kind of different spaces being created yeah. for you know traditionally marginalized groups, race being one of them, but oftentimes other kind of stuff as well. And so certainly diversity and inclusion is important, right? And and there's merit. What we said there is 
if you let race live in that same conversation, you don't ever get to the core. It's not just a lack of inclusion that's the problem. The problem is this ideology of white supremacy that actually rank quarters human beings. So we said, if your banks want to take this seriously, keep doing diversity and inclusion stuff, but create a track that's around combating the ideology of white supremacy wow. and the sickness that comes from it. And so you had executives of 20 banks saying, that's hard, but that sounds right, right? Like we need to... And you're not even coming out from a spiritual standpoint on that. It's just from a moral standpoint. Um, But I I think the work is the same. I just think we have a different kind of resource and calling as Christians. So do you have an idea of what that looks like? I mean, I don't want you to speak for the banks, but just what that sort of track looks like that combats that sickness? I mean, when you look at countries that have kind of dealt with this in a semi-healthy kind of a way, you know, whether it be Germany or whether it be Rwanda or Canada's got a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions are usually, usually start by just trying to tell the truth of what's happened, right? Which sounds so basic, but it's not basic because in our country, if you try to tell the truth, you get vicious reactions from people. Um, And so even like in a banking kind of thing or, you know, I was just in a large city that's mostly white and has a history of kind of white supremacy. And then they're asking how to build diverse churches. I'm like, before you start building diverse churches, why don't you guys all tell the truth together about how the city became the way it is, right? And tell Mm. these stories of how the narratives around white supremacy had very real impact on how the modern day reality was created. Same thing with the banking thing. Like, let's tell the stories of how this narrative of racial difference has created the kind of milieu that we now all live within. And so when you've got a distorted, sick institution that's now having diversity conversations and inclusion conversations, again, we we do want to create access for folks. But if you can't get to not only how it got to where it is, but if it's still in there, it will continue to reinvent itself you know, over time. So until right. you can name that, yeah. there's really no chance of things changing. Yeah, you're combating the sickness by perpetuating. Yeah, right. You're it. creating space. <laughs> Yeah, inclusive spaces for into a sick organization, really, right. what you're doing, right? Yeah. Which doesn't mean inclusive isn't important, but it clearly shows that we're not getting it's to It's not the necessarily stuff. the only thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're sort of talking, on you know, on some level, kind of bigger picture um, commissions, you know, churches talking about their, their communities, banks talking about kind of their organizations. Uh, what about individual? Uh, what sort of advice have you gleaned over your work? over your own personal reflection? So each of these is intense, but um, we talk about the work as being on three different fronts. Okay. That there's the individual front and in how my own identity has been shaped yeah. by the kind of poisonous narratives around race. There's the ways that my view of other people have been shaped by the narratives of race, which, you know, the psych- psychological term is now implicit bias for that. And then thirdly, how it's created the systems and structures of society and, and perpetuates it that way. So I think each, they're not necessarily chronologically independent of each other, but each one is its own kind of work. So I think the hardest interrogative kind of work is to kind of come to grips with the ways that I've internalized some of these messages around white supremacy, regardless where I fall in the ritual hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they've, they've had a lot of I've had a lot of like, I'm thinking of both an Asian friend and a Latino friend who never really thought about race growing up. But as they've wrestled with it, they've had to come to grips with the fact that they've spent most of their life trying to prove to white people that they're worthy, that they're valuable. Not to God, but to white people, right? But that wasn't something they were consciously doing. You just kind of pick that up as you go, right? So wherever we fall in the racial hierarchy, we've been shaped by that message. And we can't not. It's so pervasive. It's everywhere in society, which is what makes me feel like it's a stronghold. It's a Mm -hmm. demonic stronghold. It's everywhere. So this isn't about a one-time renouncing of those bad views and say it's instead saying it's a smog in the air it's a sickness in the air right so the minute i'm clean clear on it i go back into the real world where it starts coming into me again right so there has to be a consistent process that i think is holy for christians that's holy spirit led where we're saying 
ultimately who I am is determined by my identity in Christ. That's what I want my ultimate identity, but it's naive and even Pollyannish to think that that's actually what I'm doing, right? So on the way to there, I have to be realistic about the things that are trying to distort my identity as I try to live from that. Which is hope. This has been another episode of Hope in Hell's Kitchen. My name is Chuck Armstrong, and stay tuned for the second part of our interview with Daniel Hill.